Welcome to the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with Leslie Cooper. Leslie is a management consultant with over 25 years experience in the design and delivery of all elements of employee wellbeing management programs. In 1997, Leslie founded Working Well, an award-winning specialist consultancy that helps companies to manage workplace pressure in a way that facilitates growth and development. With her team at Working Well, Leslie designs and delivers programs that enable clients to see how workplace pressure is being experienced by their employees and use this information to empower every team and team member to get the best from themselves and each other so that they can perform sustainably and healthily to the highest standard. Working Well was shortlisted for Best Wellbeing Service Provider at the Great British Workplace Wellbeing Awards 2021. She is co-author with the late Dr. Stephen Williams of Dangerous Waters, Strategies for Improving Wellbeing at Work, published by John Wiley and Sons and Managing Workplace Stress, a Best Practice Blueprint, published by CBI Books. Leslie's latest book, Brave New Leader, How to Transform Workplace Pressure into Sustainable Performance Growth, and co-author is Vicky Smith. And on today's podcast, we'll be chatting about workplace wellness or branding charade, the workplace well-being debate, and a very well welcome to the podcast, Leslie Cooper. How are you today, Leslie? Good morning. Yes, I'm great. Thank you very much. She's lying. Don't mind. We spoke before the, port- the recording started and we both have little sniffles. So we yes. do apologise just in case. But no, she is sounding wonderful. So to let our listeners know, Leslie, where are you right now on planet Earth? I am in on the Surrey-Kent border, which is um, not um, covered in snow, but is quite frosty and chilly. It is, very it, chilly. is Surrey very posh for anybody wanting to travel the parts of the UK? Uh, it's... It's very pretty. It's quite expensive, I, I would say. A cost of a burger here is quite high. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> there are better places to have lunch. <laughs> yeah, uh, what, yeah. would, what would your TripAdvisor rating be, Leslie, if you were to entice somebody to go and visit Surrey? Was that movie The Holiday made there, was it? Uh, yes, it was. One, one of the characters was from this area. Yeah, I think she's from not this particular part of Surrey, but she, yeah, she was. Um, it's a great place. It's, there's loads and loads and loads of things to do. And um, if you like the M25, you can sit on that for quite some time as well. <laughs> it goes through a lot of Surrey. You can see quite a lot of Surrey from the M25. <laughs> yes. And temp- temperature-wise, how how chilly are we? Today. today, here it is. Uh, it's just hovering above freezing, but it was minus six last night, which is why the garden's covered in in uh, frost. Oh, right. oh. <laughs> um, so okay, I'll give a little bit of an introduction about your background. So, can you let the listeners know a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, I have run a business called Working Well since oh, 1997, long time. Um, and originally um, started my career working for um, the still, I think, the country's leading um, health insurance company, um, but on the health insurance side. And then um, the sort of middle part of my career, when I was thinking about having children and stuff, I kind of transitioned out of insurance onto the um health and well-being side in fact didn't really exist in in the late 90s it was very much a health insurance business but the business was obviously aware that we needed to move into um health more than sickness because health insurance is all about sickness um and i was at the very beginning of that development product development cycle i was specifically interested in building um, a proposition for the corporate market to help them manage um sickness absence in those days because Sickness absence was something that was sort of just accepted and wasn't really thought of as something you could influence. But when people started to think about it, they realised that what keeps people off sick 
from work is either musculoskeletal problems predominantly or psychosocial ones. And that's how really I finished up, you know, 35 years later, um, still being very interested in the relationship between emotional mental health at work and performance and attendance and presence and engagement and all those things. So um, I've always really been in this kind of space, um, yeah, from the very beginning. Uh, what was it, Leslie, that, that kind of like the turning moment that you kind of, you know, you you, you had the passion for well-being? Mm. What, what was that like, kind of like, oh, like that kind of light in the sky that said, oh, this is what I want to do for the rest uh, of my life? It's really, it's really it's a great question because the truth of it was that when I went, left to have my first child, I was in insurance. And then I experienced what it's like to to raise a small child that doesn't, that was born a little bit early and so didn't sleep. Um, and go back to work and um, hold down, you know, a job, a corporate job with, you know, BMWs and shoulder pads in those days. <laughs> and <laughs> and shoulder small, pads, yeah. And a small child. Um, and I I was asked to get involved in a project around scoping out a project for um, stress management, you know, for, for the organisation to, to sell a proposition that would help organisations manage sickness, absence and stress, particularly on the basis of that's what people didn't were avoiding. You know, if people didn't go to work, it's because there was something in the workplace they, they didn't want to get to. And we could put that under the label of stress. And I looked at the symptoms and I thought, oh, my Lord, I have all of those. <laughs> You know, in terms of sort of fatigue and lack of confidence and, you know, all the all the things that go with just being under pressure and pressure, you know, to, to do to have multiple roles and responsibilities. And, and pressure is a great thing, actually, it can produce wonderful outcomes. But if there's too much of it for your current set of coping strategies or skills, then you get a different outcome altogether. And this list of stress symptoms, I thought, oh, my goodness, I have all of those. And so I kind of like is often the way, isn't it? When you can relate to something personally, it was very easy to see how that plays out in a, inside a corporation and what those feelings uh, would do in terms of your attendance at the simplest level. But if you choose to be present, you know how how what impact that would have on your on your performance. So it became you know it was an emotional interest um and light bulb moment but it became a kind of intellectual pursuit thereafter because it's like how does that play out and uh, you know the, and the more i spend more time i spent in the space talking to individuals employees and their employers the the, the closer i see the connection is between stress and and poor performance because they're not compatible we're not wired to to do our best work when we're feeling uh, when we're triggered by the stress reaction. So, so Leslie, when you were wearing your Miami Vice shoulder pads and <laughs> you, you had your young child um, and you're feeling this kind of like fatigue and stress and on a personal level, I mean, the, did you get the sympathy from your employer that maybe you thought you might have done because, you know, maybe they, they see you, that you have mm. a new child, you might be tired, you might be sleeping, you're trying your best or... Was that sympathy there at all, or did they really care? Honestly, David, I I think they I think they did care, but right. the culture was just so different in those days. So, well, you've chosen to come back to work. Here you are. You know, I don't. I feel that's one of the one of the good things that's happened about the you know the increase in in interest in in well being at work and and you know how the effect of of work on life and and life on on work you know i think there's much more awareness that people are in a um 
you know, when as we often say, when you employ someone, the whole person comes to work, not just the bit that does the job, you know. So yes. <laughs> I think there's much more awareness of that now than there was at the time. It's sort of like, well, you you get the minute you revolve in through the revolving door, on goes the work mask and and what's going on for you outside of work isn't really our concern. And I think that's what's different, that the organisations recognise that they can't necessarily control it, but it is their concern and they should be it should be within their circle of concern because what's going on for people outside of work affects their ability to perform at their best and to bring their full self to work, which is what you need these days because we can't solve our productivity problems by simply getting more people, although we'd all like that, and that's that's not really possible. So that awareness of the connection between what's going on outside for people and accommodating that, not just being sympathetic to it, but empathic to it is is one of the best things that's happened, I think, in the last 10 years. Um, got a long way to go, but it's, you know, it's going in the right direction. So, so this this amazing term that we hear a lot, well-being or workplace well-being. So can you explain generally what it is? I mean, we see it plastered kind of different corporations, companies in the media and so on. So what is probably the most simplistic way of explaining workplace well-being or well-being in general? Uh, it's a great question. Um, I mean, put really simply, it's a good day at work. <laughs> if you, if you're sort of reducing it down to its absolute sort of essential oil, it's it's having a good day at work and good good in both directions. Not good as in, you know, I sat in a corner and I got away with doing nothing because no, I don't think there's anyone in work these days who actually would have that attitude anyway. But um, it's 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 a sort of symbiotic relationship where you know the both the employee and the employer have benefited from the association you know that the, the employee had a great day at work you know felt fulfilled felt engaged felt energized was you know interested in what they were doing and feel that they made a contribution to that and by doing that the employer is happy because he got a return on his investment in that in that person in terms of whatever it is, widgets, you know, if you make a thing or creativity or, you know, new ideas or contribution, engagement, all those things. So it is a good day at work in both directions. That's, you know, the simplest way of describing it. I think as far as the way organisations are interpreting it, it's very variable. <laughs> I think right. uh, for some people it means, um, I think what we used to refer to, you know, in the 90, in the late 90s when all this started was, you know, like lifestyle factors, you know, that we we have a well-being program that, as one of my clients once described, not about their own organisation, by the way, but just sort of like it's a little bit more than sweatbands and apples, you know. <laughs> but there are still companies who are p- perhaps approaching it as so long as we provide the sweatbands and the apples, you know, we'll, we'll be okay. We've got a well-being strategy. There'll be the other end of the spectrum who are the companies that we tend to, you know, tend to get on well with. And we work with all organisations. Wherever they're starting, it's important they do something so we can, we can work with all of them. But at the other end of our spectrum would be the organisations who've, who've, who've grasped that you need to involve the employees in that. <laughs> they are the people who are trying to have the good day at work and therefore you have to ask them, what does it feel like to work here? And to then align your activities and interventions to meet those needs rather than just assume that, you know, this will be beneficial because the bizarre thing that happens when we talk to individuals who who are, you know, for want of a better word, stressed or overwhelmed, 
is that you get a situation where they feel guilty that they can't access all this help that's provided for them because they're too busy. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, which adds to their pressure. You know, I feel pressure to use these things because my company's being really kind of providing them for me, but I just can't find the time to use the gym or whatever. So in the literature, well-being is this sort of confluence of being, it's not the absence of disease. It's about being, if you imagine a Venn diagram with three circles, you know, with one of them being physical, the other one being mental and the other one being social health, where they coincide in the middle, that's considered to be well-being. So, you know, in order to be well, you need to be broadly, you know, physically, mentally and, and socially well and when those three things together that's comes together that could be defined as well-being um i think these days you'd have to add financial health into that as well because obviously that's a big a big impact for for most people but um it's a simple term but it's interpreted in many many different ways by different people but that's what it means to us do you think leslie i mean to go back uh, further to our school days or when we're growing up and we're learning our maths and our English and French and so on, do you think it could be a good practice? You mentioned there the financial side as well, that maybe the school curriculum, and this is only an opinion question for yourself, anybody's out there kind of saying, oh, you can't say this, you can't say that. But do you think it's a good idea or suggestion maybe to bring that within the school curriculum, that children from a young age learn about well-being and they learn about how to manage stress and they learn about how to manage money is that is that something for the future or is that happening now um i would say it's happening it's certainly happening in the independent sector interestingly enough i mean i i'm a, a um chair of a school governing board so i i know a little bit about this um and and obviously in the independent sector where you tend to have very high performing you perhaps have a, a kind of um, concentration of high-performing kids. Um, it becomes more of a, a necessity, really, because in order to operate at the level that the children and their parents—I would perhaps say their parents—want them to operate at, there are, you know, there are certain decisions that have to be made in terms of how you manage your personal resources. And I do think that there's an awareness that you know, even in the schools, that performance, even when you're in school, is um, affected by the way you manage your personal resources, you know, that and that doesn't, that might be something as simple as making, as it is in the corporate world, making sure that you take appropriate recovery, you know, having your phone taken off you is not necessarily a great plan. Maybe you should, you know, do an hour's worth of homework, fully engaged, and then spend 40 minutes or 30 minutes on Instagram or whatever it is that brings you joy, you know, and then... And go back to work rather than being pinned into your bedroom by yourself by fear of your teachers or by fear of your parents for four hours you know <laughs> grinding through your homework then going to bed being chased by the number nine you know yeah <laughs> you have any appropriate recovery before you try to go to sleep the same story actually is kind of in corporate well-being about managing recognizing that you can't do it all and you have to make some decisions how you use yourself and and how you what quality of attention you're going to give to things if you're going to give it your attention, you know, because while you're doing that, you can't be doing something else. So you might as well, you know, give it, don't multitask and give it your full attention. So I think the schools generally are, are aware of that. And I think it does make sense generally anyway, because we live in a world where the the amount of 
demands on your attention are so very much greater than your ability to respond to them all that you do need some skills in the 21st century that you probably didn't need when we were growing up, you know, about data discernment, about managing your focus and about accepting actually that you can't, doesn't matter if you going faster won't necessarily enable you to get it all done. You've got to, you've got to make some decisions about how you use your, your, what we would call your personal energy resources, you know, in order to, to meet life's demands. So I think it's starting. I think we could do more. Uh, certainly a lot of kids arrive, I hear, arrive at universities where they come out of an, an institutionalised environment where you're told what to do and how to do it. And and it becomes more self-directed learning and all the constraints are off in terms of, of self-regulation and they, they can't cope. It takes a little while to... Um, you know, to find to find the skills and learn the skills to to make those decisions. So I think there's a lot we could do to prime people for for that more generally, but also so that when they do go into the world of work, they can not expect their employer to to solve all their problems for them because you do have to practice a, a certain amount of personal responsibility for your own well being. I think. That was a long answer, wasn't it? I bet you no, should... that was a good answer. I think, well, <laughs> even with the personal responsibility, I mean, with having these well-being programs within an organisation or uh, any place, generally, um, can there be a risk of the staff or employee milking the system, so to speak? If, if for example, the company say, you know, if you need three days off a year, you're going to get three days off a year. Can that have a kind of a negative effect as well by the employee thinking, well, I can get three days off, irrelevant if I don't feel sick or I don't need it. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's interesting. It's a very interesting question because the whole interest in managing sickness absence at work, funnily enough, like I said, 35 years ago now, whatever it is, um, started from an assumption that that could be the case. You know, that if you, there used to be this word called malingering. You don't hear it anymore, malingering. <laughs> but, you know, if you gave people um, discretionary days, they would make sure they took them um, because because they were offered. And, and that, that kind of attitude permeated the whole workplace. And I think it's 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 become a little bit clearer that it's unlikely that that's going to be the case even then and certainly isn't the case now. So I think providing well-being services doesn't necessarily in itself increase demand for them. As I've just said, quite the opposite. I think people are grateful sometimes that these things are there, but they struggle to find the time to use them because there's just there's just so much to do. And most of the companies that we work with and most of the people that we speak to in a kind of therapeutic environment, because we 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 work at all ends of the spectrum, you know, from the preventative all the way down to the, you know, people who have already been affected by life events or by overwhelm or whatever. And what they tell us is that they, um, you know, they're lit, they're operating inside an environment where it just feels like it doesn't really matter how you organise yourself. There's too much to do. There's simply not enough resource to go around, and that may or may not be the case. It's quite a, it's quite a sweeping statement to say you know there's 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 too much to do this but there's a general sense in our diagnostic tools something like between 60 and 70 percent of any work group you speak to will say they feel pressure from a sense of having too much to do in too little time that means they just it doesn't matter 
how I organise the deck chairs on this boat, it feels like it's going down. Um, (laughs) I I, like the way you said that. (laughs) And the band plays on, you know. The band plays on. (laughs) (laughs) I think that there's... um, it's unlikely, therefore, that people have the bandwidth to say, oh, well, I'll, you know, I'll take that that duvet day because it's offered. Because what I see is that people are so committed, so engaged. We recruit for this level of engagement, don't we? They're so committed and so engaged in what they're doing. Certainly the white collar sector may be a little bit different in the blue collar, but people are so engaged in the in what they're doing that they struggle to find the time to even go home <laughs> when they're right. supposed to go home, you know, let alone taking additional days because they're, they're offered. So I think it's, don't think it's much of a risk to be fair. Leslie, do you think then that, I mean, as we talk about well-being and from two sides, say the company side and, and the employee or the individual side, is it more of a brand or a branding exercise for the company. And then for the opposite side, just in case I can hear some screaming going on, shouting at me in the background. Um, what about an employee who's quite skeptic? You know, they, they're kind of, I don't believe in this nonsense that the company is is kind of throwing out there. So from both sides, what would you say for and against? Yeah, um, I think most organisations, if I'm honest, are um authentic in their thinking and their motivation to provide these services let's put that out there i think they i think there's very little evidence that people are deliberately cynical this is the corporation deliberately cynical about what they're providing you know put simply well if we provide all of this then we can just drive them harder and harder and harder. That is that is not a conversation that I have ever heard. Actually, I think there is, however, a disconnect between organisations thinking that by providing all of these services, they are managing well-being as well as they can. I think they it's it's important that these services are provided. And I often think it's a little bit like a buffet, you know, and just like at weddings, the buffet, when you first come out, there's this wonderful array of gloriously presented food. It's all very similar, (laughs) often pastry based with sausages in it, (laughs) different forms of pastry. But there it all is and it's beautiful. And like an hour and a half in, about 10% of it has gone and the rest of it has been rearranged and and, and 10% of it's gone to the people who were really hungry and, and needed it. And the rest has been sort of picked and grazed over. And I think in a way I'm seeing this, I don't know how popular this will be as an analogy, but I am seeing a lot of the wellbeing offerings that companies are providing as being a bit like that. You know, it's very, it looks good, but actually ultimately unsatisfying because it doesn't really meet the appetites of the people that are present. And um, so a lot of it gets wasted and left behind, you know, and not used. And and I think a lot of people would be, would would agree with that. They know they spend a lot of money on these things and they're not really sure that, that they, they're, the uptake, the engagement with these things is as high as they would like it to be. And that's because it probably doesn't meet the needs or as we said earlier, they're so busy, they can't get at them. Um, so I think the intention is always honourable, but I think it's it's unfortunate that the objective is not always met, but but not through any 
cynical reason, just because it's just they're just not matched up terribly well. Um, as far as the individual employee is concerned, I think, again, it's mixed. I think probably if you put a number on it, four out of five of the people that we would speak to would, would recognise the attempt that the company is making to provide services to manage their well-being. Um, one, the other one in five, the other 20% will be quite cynical about it and say they're doing this, but they're not, they're absolutely they're doing this because they don't want to address the real issue, which is that there aren't enough people here to do the work. Right. Um, and that's their belief. And therefore it it, it looks to them like a, a cynical attempt at just, you know, squeezing more blood out of the stone perhaps. Um um, is it a perception thing as well, Leslie? So if 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 you're kind of sold a dream of um and I've been sarcastic here, uh bean bags and um you know free tea, free coffee, free meals and this type of stuff, and your perception is, oh wow, this is this is pretty pretty cool, pretty amazing. And then you go in then to the company and you're just you're you're work like a dog. Is 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 it sometimes better to reduce your expectations and just accept that this is what the company offers, but I'm here to do a job, take the money and and run. <laughs> yeah. Um, yes. I mean, I, I think a lot of people who um, find themselves in that situation kind of knew that was the organisation they were going to be working for anyway. I don't think there's very, very few people these that I've come across these days who don't expect to have to work very hard and they accept that. I think the you know the the cynicism comes from the belief that of from the from the, the the thought that possibly the company is is providing these services and describing themselves in one way but is actually performing and asking them to perform in a way that's fundamentally different in other words the kind of mission and vision and values doesn't actually line up with what's happening or what they're being asked to do on a daily basis. Um, but, and on that basis, they, you know, become even more cynical about the services that are offered because they don't even seem to be worth using because my, my day-to-day reality is that you don't, you, you don't really care about me. And therefore I'm not going to collude with you by using your services because I just don't think they're, you know, they're, they're being offered for the right reason. But, but most people I think would, would see they. I think it's less the services and more the recognition that you might want a life outside of work. And that's what's starting to be brought into, into wellbeing packages about flexibility, about ability to, you know, practice hybrid working in a way that makes sense to you. These are the things that people value, but if they find out that when they get there, they're still expected to be into the office, you know, we said you could work from home, but actually we'd really prefer it if you didn't, then that's when the problem starts because you have been sold a bit of a lie really. And I think that's when the cynicism sets in. It's interesting you say that because that, that was kind of, a, I'm going to lead on to that question is that when, when initially you say you join an organization or a company and they have all these wonderful wellbeing uh, systems in place or uh, benefits, and then maybe six months or nine months into the company, they, they give their their uh, their results, the company results, the profits are down. They still they still made one point three billion, but we're going to take this away. We're going to take that away. And um, kind of adding on to what you said there, does that lead more to the negativity then and more 
uh, you know, uh, skeptic approach from an individual because like we had that and they're still made one point something billion or two billion, but they want to take away, you know, my coffee in the morning or my free tea. Does that add to the 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 problems? Yeah, I mean, it, it absolutely does. There's, there's no there's no doubt about that. And we we see that a lot in um, organisations that are taken over. You know, this is, this is another way it happens, that you have a company who's got a kind of local management that gets it, is investing in a, a good example was um, a company we were working with who had on-site emotional support services, you know, which is quite quite a commitment one day a week to have somebody available who we supplied um to talk to people at the stage when you're you know before it's become overwhelmed but just oh, I don't know you know if, if you can get people at the stage where they're starting to feel unsettled um which happens quite a long time before people you know when people are in that strain zone before they become overwhelmed that's you know that's a good time to kind of give people some things they can think about and some some actions and perhaps refer them on to other services that the the company might have and this was working extraordinarily well and in fact the girls had they were there for one day a week eight appointments a day they had a waiting list of three weeks <laughs> and the company was taken over by another company who axed the service straight away and said we have we can spend that money in a different way um and it was it was very difficult for the organization for the people that we were speaking with in the organization and some of the people that we were having to sever that relationship with to get their head around how can we take the company seriously when they say they're interested in their well-being and we have a service that has got a waiting list of a month and it's being axed for reasons of cost which is a drop in the ocean compared yeah. to what the company was making and what they will have just paid for the company they bought, you know. So that is it's a real it is a real thing because at the end of the day, even a very generous well-being package with generous everything is still usually a very, very small proportion of your salary cost and certainly your your profit cost or your you know your profit level. So um it is hard, isn't it, to get your head around? Yeah. Whether it's really, really honest that we really do care about your well-being when it's only a very tiny cost, and and we'll have that. But if we're cost saving, we'll have that. <laughs> it's like it's difficult to to keep that kind of optimism. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> difficult to keep that thought out of your head, isn't it? <laughs> it's it's interesting because um, there's one company I worked for years ago, and they've always stood out in my mind, and it was uh, Singapore Airlines, and I, when I joined, because I came from kind of a Western company culture, and when I joined there, they had um, once a month, they had this kind of like a, every Friday, it was like a, not a meeting, but it was kind of, it probably was, it was, yeah, it was actually a meeting, but you had like management there and you had somebody there to take notes and they just kind of asked you, okay, what's the problems? What do we need to do to make this better? What do we need to, to fix this? And it was interesting because at, at the first probably couple of meetings, I was kind of kind of you know cynical. What's this all about? But in fairness, they actually did um, try their very best to change things, and they involved everybody and integrated every, everybody. And that's one thing I haven't seen Leslie in any company since then that I've actually worked with or worked for. And I find it kind of interesting. Is is it then to lead on to my question? Is is it important then to maybe have like a, a company meeting with all the staff 
uh, maybe once a month, an open thing where you can have like uh, a bit of food, very relaxed atmosphere. And is it important to have, say, one or two people that you can actually go to in the event that you have an issue or a problem or you need well-being supports rather than just having the information there? And as you mentioned before, you're kind of you're just too busy to find it or you're too busy to ask somebody for help. What's your take on that? Absolutely. Um, you've, I mean, you've hit on something super important there. And there's actually there's two things. We'll deal with the second one first, because if we st- go to the other one, we could be here for 10 minutes. <laughs> the access to somebody that you trust to talk to is absolutely critical. Um, uh, it's related to the second point anyway, about how safe people feel around their leadership, how psychologically safe people feel around their leadership and around their colleagues or whether they feel it's safe to access any of these services anyway, that if it became known that you, you know, you, you rang the employee assistance program and, you know, took up your offer of four or five telephone counseling services that somehow you would be seen as weak at the simplest level. And there's still a bit of a stigma with that knocking around, you know, that, that if you're, there's a, you know, there's a certain way of being. And if you're not like that, then somehow you're diminished, you know, and that you're not, uh, you're not um, you're not quite as good as the next person who could cope, you know, and you couldn't cope, so you had to go and talk to somebody. I think that's all changed, thankfully. But there is still um, a concern in some organisations, or we have a concern that some organisations, it's not clear where these services are and it's not necessarily as easy for them to be accessed confidentially and anonymously as people might like. Uh, and that's why we knew this on-site service was was just one of the reasons why it was so popular because it was absolutely light touch you know there was no stigma associated with going to you know it was positioned as kind of tea and sympathy really to give people somewhere to go to, to offload a little bit and then decide from then on whether they were just having a bad day today or in fact I've been having a bit of a bad month and and the general direction of travel is that I'm you know I'm 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 probably you know experiencing some well-being issues keeping it simple so accessibility to somebody or some service um, that you trust is really important ideally and this is where the leadership component comes in being led or managed locally by people who you feel have got your back who you can say do you know what um I'm struggling a bit (laughs) or I don't know how I'm going to do this new thing that you've asked me to do because I'm already overwhelmed. You know, just that very simple, can we have a chat about how we could restructure my workload because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm already kind of extending the working day and I'm working evenings and weekends as well. And I'm running out. My elbows are now on the wall. You know, I don't really have anywhere else to go feeling you can have that conversation at that point or better still before you get to that point is really, really important. Um, and when we're talking about well-being these days, that's that's the sort of thing we should be focusing on really, how how easy it is for people to, to access support when they feel they need it. Um, but it's related to the second point, which is what you were saying about Singapore Airlines, about employee involvement um, and creating the sort of culture um, you know, the buzzword is all about psych safety at the moment, psychological safety. A, a psychologically safe workplace is one where employees are feel able, um, better still are invited, but feel able to share 
their thoughts and insights about what's going on, <laughs> about how yes. we're doing things, about how we might be able to uh, do things a little bit better. Um, but or even, heaven forbid, express an opinion that's different to that of your leader, (laughs) which may, in fact, speed our progress in the right direction instead of us all, you know, doffing caps and saying, that sounds like a good plan, thinking, oh, it's never going to work. We don't have the resources anymore in companies to be able to disappear down those rabbit holes. So current leadership thinking and thank goodness it's here but it's taking a little while to to embed because it does require leaders to change their way of leading sometimes is about asking questions you know the technical term for it's humble inquiry you know asking a question to which you do not already know the answer and be and feeling able to say to your employees who are considerably less senior than you i don't know how we're going to solve this problem what do you think because the thoughts in those heads that are sitting down there looking at you are invaluable. Um, but people will not share them if they don't feel it's safe to do so. In the same way, they won't share, which is why I said this is related to the first first point, they won't share their emotional or well-being problems with leaders or even their colleagues if they don't feel safe around them, if they feel there'll be negative consequences in any form, either, you know, hopefully not career limiting ones. Surely we're not working in that sort of environment anymore. But if a negative consequence could just be feeling that you've lost the respect of your colleagues or your manager doesn't think you're for them. You know, there are many, many ways in which, um, you know, people are busy always practicing impression management, you know. And if you think that by articulating this thought or this idea that people would think less of you, it's safer to sit on your hands and say nothing. But if you you don't need me to spell out what a waste that is <laughs> in terms of doing more with the same resources because you've got all this new thought and ideas and, and ways perhaps to experiment to do things differently and better um, that just stay locked up inside the employee. So your question about half an hour ago was, <laughs> is it important to have <laughs> this sort of format? Absolutely. I mean, we I have spent my most of my work in life trying to get this point across, that you can buy the other services, do that. It's important. It's really important that we have these safety nets for people. And, yes, we should try and uh, do what we can to help our employees develop the skills to cope with living and working in the 21st century because we're not born with them <laughs> because the world has changed so much and many of our upbringings that we were just saying in relation to you know how you were how you went through school haven't necessarily prepared us for the sheer pace of life and the overload of information and demands on your attention so there's a lot that organizations can do to help people become, for want of a better word, resilient to that, you know, to to manage their personal resources in a way that helps them, you know, meet those challenges head on without being kind of knocked over by them. But that needs should always be supplemented by opportunities to do exactly what you were doing at Singapore Airlines and probably better done locally, I think, because the trouble with having senior leadership is that you're a bit even with the most psychologically safe environments. He was still the big boss, though. So yes. I'm scared. But you should be able to have a psychologically safe conversation with your local leadership about why are we doing it like this? What about if we did it like that? You know, and just and get involvement on 
the things that are causing people the pressure in the first place. And that is best practice in any risk management model you'll get. You need primary, secondary and tertiary interventions. Training and and emotional support services are critical, but they're secondary and tertiary interventions. The magic happens when you combine those with employee input through that sort of Singapore Airlines type dialogue with the teams about what would better look like. They're, they're, they're getting good advertisement today. They are. Uh, yes, they are. <laughs> they Which are. Something, I have to give them credit because I think you mentioned there even with the, you know, the big boss and stuff like that, because even in the beginning, um, the bosses would, would actually integrate. You'd even have the CEO there. And it, it, it was an interesting thing you said there, like even with leadership, um, it was a great lesson for me on leadership that they they did listen. They were receptive to feedback, and they knew it was for the greater good of the company. And that was something that always stuck with me for for all these years. And um, I give them great credit because I find myself even now I always compare different places that I've been or different places that I've worked to that environment. And although it took me a while to adapt, because um, you know yourself, Leslie, you can be quite, and this is anybody that's listening to this, you'd be quite suspicious you can again of why why is the, you know, why is my boss here? And why is my boss so nice and friendly? And why is my CEO coming to this? And why, and you kind of have like, are they, are they just, are they watching me? Are they, and you have this kind of like these thoughts, but then over time you realize actually, no, they, they see the greater good in doing this. And um, if it's, well. if it's, if they get absolutely. the information back, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And again, there's two things there, which reminds me to modify what I just said, that the local, these conversations are best initiated locally because they're less, they're threatening because of all the things that you've just said. But what you need is it to be, to go all the way through the organisation. And if the, so, because a, a local conversation doesn't go anywhere. I mean, obviously a local conversation should enable you to focus in on things that within are within your sphere of, influence you know what what these discussions are not supposed to do is is for the the manager to leave with a list of things he or she has got to implement as long as his arm it's about the team being able to identify things that they can action but there will be systemic things that the senior leadership could really benefit from hearing about and so opportunities to have access to the senior leadership in the same way is also very reinforcing of the local discussion but also particularly important because it gives the senior leadership which is what they were getting they may not have done this intentionally but by by creating environments where they connect with the people who actually do the job on a day-to-day basis the it's, it's organizational learning for the leaders they need this information but there's but it's almost like there's a the nerve has been cut sometimes in some organizations that the lead, senior leadership have very little opportunity to ever find out firsthand what it's like to be at the coalface and that's information that they really do need to have for, or obviously you know they can function without it but it's in you can't really put a price on on that absolutely you know real time insight into what's going on further down them in the organization so there are there are enormous benefits in doing it locally but there are also benefits in making sure that there are opportunities for this information to be fed directly into leadership for no other reason than the leadership will benefit from hearing it um, and unfolding it into their other stock of information about the decisions they need to make for the organization 
So um, they were possibly ahead of their time because it's, it's, it's being understood now and and you see a little bit more of it, but it's um, it's quite, I suspect at the time it was quite unusual, which is why you haven't found it replicated anywhere else. Um, but it has to be genuine, which is the other thing, um, because otherwise, because people do approach this with a sense of inevitably, if, if it's not something that's happened before and suddenly all the senior leaders are sweeping in and going, okay, so tell us about it, they're very unlikely to get much out of them for a while because you don't trust the process but it's just about repeating it and giving people opportunities and just like yourself as you said second or third iteration go okay i'm gonna put my hand up and say because it doesn't look like there's been any negative consequences from any of the other things that have come up so why don't i you know why don't i contribute but you have to go slowly to start with yeah, no, it, it's, it's interesting the last thing i'll say about this regards they had this thing called just culture and generally if something happened like, uh, within the company, for example, they wouldn't just automatically blame you as the individual. They would go back and kind of trace and go, okay, uh, was he or she tired? Did we give them a, a, a night duty? Did we do this? Did we do that? Um, was this correct? Was that correct? And it would all go backwards. And then eventually it would come to you. But before it came to you, they would actually find out what may have caused you to make a mistake or you're not trying to get up yeah kind of- uh, oh absolutely so and they were obviously they must they, they they were they were ahead of their time because or or rather they were just doing it and other people have put labels on it now because that process of avoiding blame by cultivating curiosity is how it's done because things do go wrong. If you're trying to create a psychologically safe culture inside an organization so that people can, at the simplest level, tell you when they're about to go over the edge so they don't have to use your well-being services, but on a more practical level, be innovative, feel safe to take what are known as interpersonal risks around each other, you know, and just try a new approach or share an idea that might be might sound really wacky in your head, but actually could be really valuable or actually spot a mistake and and own up to it at the time before it becomes critical, before it ends up getting worse or consuming more resources. All of that requires there to be no blame because the minute there's the sniff of potential blame, everybody clams up because fundamentally without giving you a lesson in ancestral psychology, (laughs) we are... We are a team. We are a band, aren't we? Human beings are living lived in bands. So acceptance by our group is 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 a life or death matter in our ancestry. So we don't want to be. We don't want to diverge from the group unless the group has given us permission to do so. So if we don't feel we have permission, if we feel we'll be judged or blamed for doing something different or expressing an idea that is. Is not congruent with the with the group generally. That is uncomfortable. So you have to feel safe to do that. And and the whiff of blame, potential blame, is enough to to basically shut that whole risk taking thing down. So how it's done is to is to build a culture inside an organisation that is naturally curious when something went wrong or didn't work out. Why was that? Not who did that? <laughs> yes. Why? 
But why did that happen and what can we learn from it so that we can speed up the process, not make the same mistake again and use the learning in a way that enables us to try again, but slightly differently. And, you know, in other words, we can tolerate, we get get the business to understand the difference between intelligent failure and and incompetence because because failures are rarely due to incompetence they're just due to something not quite being right so um it's it's enormously exciting from a leadership perspective just how much you can you can liberate from your existing team just by helping them feel a bit safer around you and around each other but you have to practice it and curiosity is is the key to it so yeah so well done, Singapore Airlines. We've spoken yeah. about it for the last 15 or 20 <laughs> minutes. So congratulations. Anyway, Leslie, we'll move on then to uh, you're the founder of Working Well. So this is the business side, Leslie. This is time to sell yourself and the services. Mm. So go for it. What is Working Well and what services does Working Well provide? Okay, well, the, the, the clue's in the title, really. We've been very fortunate to have nabbed that in 1997 because um, it, it does a very good job for us because it kind of explains the the work we're very into you know the impact that wellness for want of a, a better label has on people's ability to work you know so our so the the, the performance side of the business in terms of managing psychos what might be called just psychosocial health risks generally but you know stress the business started out really looking at stress how does stress how does pressure how does external factors and the way in which employees process those impacts their ability to perform well at a high standard and sustainably so that's obviously the well-being connection um from from the performance perspective so that if if we understand the factors that can make people perform well um that are within our control how can we organize our resources and our and our culture accordingly to enable everybody to come to work and bring their full selves to work so that they can have a good day at work yeah so they can perform well enjoy what they do be engaged and fulfilled and creative and all those things. So it's these days more about how efficiently employees are working in relation to the pressures and demands that are on them and what are the factors that are getting in the way and what are the enablers and what are the disablers. So in that context, um, we provide a lot of this kind of two or three main strands to our the work that we do. A lot of customers use us for measuring um, those factors in their in their workplace. So so where do people feel pressure? How does it affect them? How is it impacting on their ability to maintain their boundaries between home and work? And and how are they how are they rating their good day at work? <laughs> Did they are they are they energized and engaged or are they approaching, you know, burnout and <clears throat> starting to think about looking for another job? So we do a lot of work in that space, but we also do a lot of work in, in leadership development to help managers do some of the things we've just been describing really about recognizing that, that when the people turn up, the whole person's come, not just a bit that does the job and, and helping them to create a local culture where people can bring their full selves to work, be open and honest creative um and and love their job and then go home and love their life as well and, and still have a life and um feel able to recover appropriately so that when they are at work they can bring their full selves so that's um 
I suppose these days labelled under kind of resilience, you know, so we do a lot of team and personal resilience training for individuals and for managers, but also that leadership development piece around leading for well-being. How do you adapt small, very small adaptions to your natural perhaps way of, of leading to create the culture where people can um, be their full selves and give as much of themselves as they have to give without damaging them in the process, which is why it sits <laughs> in the well-being space, you know, because it's no good, you know, flogging the horse if the horse then dies on the field. You know, yes. you want to keep running <laughs> and run and come back and be <laughs> joyful to jump for you again tomorrow. So, um, you know, we're not mixing my metaphors there. So that's the kind of well-being and performance connection because they are inf- infinitely connected. But we also do provide therapeutic services as well. Um, on-site and telephone counselling for for individuals who and and coaching for executive leaders really who are struggling to make that work for them you know it's got out of balance somewhere and help them to make the small step changes they need to get back so well-being and performance um so you know working well so are well are people well when they're working and are they working as well as they can be you know so that's the that's the elevator speech. It's a very long and tall building. <laughs> <laughs> and how, how then does it say an, indiv- an individual or an organisation get in touch with you um, to start a process? And is the process an ongoing process or is it like a block maybe of, say, one day, two day kind of programmes or a week or is it continuous or is it just very depending on what, what the clients want? Yeah, and nearly every solution that we have in place in the world at the moment, and it is a global business, and we do a lot of, um, we have clients all over the world, is it's variable to their needs. So, you know, we, some of the biggest programs, are, as I say, are global. They've got the diagnostic tools being used in 10 or 15 countries at once. Um, and they've been, you know, they run for several years, right down to a single one hour webinar <laughs> for a, for an organization who just wants to give their managers some tips on how to uh, support people who come to them when they're struggling, how to spot people who are struggling um, or, or, you know, in the middle of a whole program, perhaps of half a dozen, you know, a cycle of, of um, energy management courses for employees so that they can, you know, learn to use their resources better any any anywhere on that spectrum um i think these days it's more fun to actually do the small dedicated pieces of work you know and and often the big this is how the big stuff started often as a single workshop you know 10 years later it's grown into a global program but most work most of the work we do starts with a a simple i've got a really high performing team that i'm worried about you know how do we can we have a conversation with them about sustainability? You know, and that's that's often how it starts. Or I'm concerned that our managers don't really know how to support people. Uh, or I want to improve the level of mental health literacy in my leadership team. You know, any of those. And they often start as single, very containable pieces of work and they lead to other things. So we're very happy to join anywhere in the process because <laughs> ne- nearly everyone's doing something. Yes. So it's, what we end up doing is is bringing often bringing complementing what they're already doing or bringing what they've got together in a way so they get more return on their investment by you know by integrating it a little bit or even attaching it to some form of diagnostic 
or assessment tool so they can actually measure the progress that they're making because this is the other problem we spend all this money but people don't because there's no they don't uh, they don't know where their well-being started they're not able to say that it's got better or worse because they never measured it at the beginning so our assessment tools are quite popular for that purpose at the moment that was brilliant. I mean, you're, you're you're way ahead of your time, as you said. It's, uh, you you started this up when when shoulder pads were uh, were, <laughs> were in fashion, so so you really really done well. Um, let's move on in regards to um your books. So you are the co-author with uh, the late Dr. Stephen Williams of Dangerous Waters: Strategies Strategies for Improving Wellbeing at Work and Managing Workplace Stress. And then the more recent one is uh, Brave New Leader: How to Transform Workplace pressure into sustainable performance and growth and just confirming is that with vicky smith as well yes so vicky and i um have worked together for at least 10 years now um and vicky's actually a registered psychotherapist so she does a lot of our um one-to-one executive coaching and support for individuals but we collaborate on a lot of our consulting work with organisations either, you know, be it shaping their strategy, they haven't got one or, you know, moving it on or trying to integrate some of the these ideas into their, you know, their existing uh, provision. Uh, and the thing about Brave, I think the first two books were very much around, um, you know, trying to, again, trying to get some rigour into managing stress in the workplace by understanding that, you know, there are key sources of pressure for people. And that, as we said earlier on, pressure in itself is not bad. In fact, pressure, when it's appropriate to our coping strategies, can be very beneficial because it, most of anything you've ever achieved in your life came by you being a little bit behind the curve, you know, and having to raise your game and, and try different things. So pressure is a catalyst for personal and organisational growth. So pr- we don't want to get rid of pressure. Pressure is a good thing. Um, but it, it, there is a sweet spot, and if it's not, if it exceeds people's ability to cope, that's where resilience comes in. Because if you can help people develop new ways of coping with pressure, external pressures, then actually their resilience grows, and their ability to the sweet spot moves. You know, you, the pressure is it, the, the the point at which the pressure curve dips away from growth down to strain and overwhelm actually gets extended. So that's where resilience training comes in. But what's happened, as we might have already suggested, is in the, the first two books, we're really focusing on, on people measuring the sources of pressure and helping employees to address some of those things directly. But what's not necessarily wasn't thought about so much when those books were written, because they're actually probably 10, at least 15 years old now, is the impact that this concept of psychological safety has on um, people's ability to perform. And so the, the new book really looks more into that. It's just sort of like all the, the other stuff still applies in terms of helping people to become more resilient. But there's a big leadership component in terms of creating the right environment for people to feel able to share their ideas and um, contribute to building better well-being in the workplace. And that's really the clues on the front cover, you know, that by doing some of these things, you can take pressure, which is a given, and isn't going to go down anytime soon. In fact, it's only going to get worse in our in our VUCA world, you know, with more uncertainty and volatility and all these things create more pressures for people. More than ever, we need to work inside organisations that can create a local culture that's m- mirrored and modelled and acted on by senior leadership to recognise the value of the individual 
Um, and if you can do that, then you can liberate a lot of contribution and a lot of engagement and a lot of energy and sustain high performance inside an increasingly pressurized environment without people getting sick. Um, not doing it, which is what's happening in a lot of places, is 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 the evidence is all there in the stress statistics. So the the new one brings us more up to date, I suppose, with the current thinking around how to manage well-being more holistically rather than uh, just measuring how much of it you have and carting everyone off to counselling when, when it's too much. <laughs> oh, was that too much? <laughs> so it's a little bit more um it's a little bit more focused on the leadership um obligations, I think. And, and when can where can the, the book be purchased? Is it it's all on the Amazon and it's on Amazon, yeah. It's on Amazon. Uh, we're on socials as well. Um LinkedIn's probably the best place to find us, but we're on Facebook too. But uh, LinkedIn is the way, and we obviously have our website. So nearly everything you could want to know about any of the things we've spoken about are probably on there. Well, it's a huge thank you for chatting uh, with me today, Leslie. I've uh, had a greater insight on uh, the two sides of the story. Obviously, the individual and the uh, organisation or the company. So I'll simply say thanks so much to Leslie Cooper of uh, working well for chatting with today on the Wellbeing Career World podcast. Uh, once the podcast has been approved by Leslie, it'll be released for you all to listen to on uh, social media and your favourite podcast channel. So thanks so much, Leslie, for chatting with me today. Thank you. It's been lovely. Thanks for the invite. Thank you.